This is the Mayor Greg Fisher Podcast. I'm Graham Shelton. I work in the mayor's office. And in this episode, we'll hear from Bruce Katz. He works for the Brookings Institution and is an expert in how cities work, or sometimes don't. Dr. Katz has taken an interest in Louisville in recent years. This month, he visited the city and learned more about some of the programs that are happening here. Mayor Fisher and Dr. Katz also discussed the current state and the future of cities like Louisville before an audience of city employees and partners in the Mayor's Gallery at Metro Hall. Let's listen in. Okay, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good. Well, thanks so much for coming out uh, this morning to hear from who I believe is the preeminent speaker and thinker on cities in the world today. And as we all know, uh, cities are where, in our country, certainly where most of the population lives. In the United States, about 85% of our citizens live in metropolitan areas, and about 92, 93% of our GDP comes from metro areas. So for those folks that want to chastise cities, they're basically chastising the entire United States of America. And increasingly, cities are the places where innovation is coming from, where social connection is coming from, and certainly where you see the future of our country in terms of diversity and pluralism and the hope that we have. But there's no question that we're going through a rural-urban challenge in our country right now, and that's really probably the biggest political story that's taking place. But Bruce is not restricted to thoughts on American cities. He is seen all over the world as the guy that just kind of jumps up and sees, and, and sees the activity that's taking place in all cities, uh, from policy issues uh, to built environment issues, and then global political trends as well, which certainly have been extraordinarily dynamic in these past five years or so, whether it's the Brexit, uh, whether it's the recent election in Italy about uh, 10 days or so ago, uh, the ascendance of China, uh, Russia continuing to want to be relevant in its own way, which tends to be quite muscular in the world. And all of these things have an effect on cities. One of the things uh, Bruce will share with us, I hope, today also, is there are different models for cities in the world. Uh, we have a very American model here in our, in our country, obviously, of how we proportion the wealth that we generate as a people. We consciously make those choices in terms of how much that money goes into education, how much of that money goes into housing, into anti-poverty efforts. And there are other countries in the world that have a far different way of expressing their values through their budget. There are countries in the world that have no poverty, uh, for instance, uh, when you look at the Nordic uh, countries, and maybe we can talk about the impact mm -hmm. that, that has on folks. So there are just not many people that have, the one, the intellect, and two, the privilege to be able to travel the world and be an observer, and then to synthesize what they see, and then to share that synthesis and those learnings with the rest of the world for further learning. And that's what our guest, Bruce Katz, uh, has the uh, privilege and opportunity to do. Uh, Bruce has been a friend of Louisville for quite some time. Uh, he helped the city in, uh, I guess, the early 2000s when Louisville and Jefferson County merged with some of our initial planning on that. When I was elected as mayor, I was familiar with Bruce, so I tracked him down in Chicago. He was doing an event there before I came into office, but after I was elected and asked him to come and help us uh, devise a strategic plan for our city. Probably not surprising to you guys. 
Bruce summarily dismissed me. <laughs> he said that type of work, you didn't say it this way, but here's how I took it. This type of work was far below his pay grade right now. He, he had some tertiary folks with Brookings who he was with at the time that perhaps could help us. I was a little despondent, but I didn't give up knowing me. I just kind of kept chewing on his ankle. And he said, we do have a new concept. That was at the very beginning mm -hmm. of the regional economic uh, development plan. So he said, do you have a, a city that you might think about working with to develop a broader metro plan? And of course, Jim Gray had just been elected into Lexington. Uh, you all know about our relationship with Lexington and Jim Gray. And I, so that's what led to the BEAM initiative and the wonderful work that we did with Brookings on that, with Bruce and Amy Liu and many other folks at Brookings that you all have met. That led to some of our work with the Global Cities work with Brookings and J.P. Morgan Chase, our work with our, our Kentuckiana Works, our summer youth program. And right now we're in a global branding issue. We're one of four cities, I believe it's four cities, that are working with Brookings on how does a medium-sized breakout city in America develop a global brand to bring more international activity to our city, both in terms of FDI uh, and exports, and then just general uh, tourism and awareness as well. So uh, most all this happened because of our relationship with Bruce, and I think our team, we've got a great team great here. Team. And one of the things that Bruce, I think, will share with us is that we, our team executes. We're a great partner with Brookings. Uh, when they work with folks, whether it's Brookings or now Bruce in his uh, new capacity, they've got to have partners that perform because there's a lot of funding behind this work. And if, so if they're not working with cities that are capable of executing in their, and moving their thought work forward, that's not a good return on anybody's time. So I'm proud of our team here, you guys, what we've done in terms of being able to deliver as a value-added partner to Bruce many, many times. Bruce comes with us today. Uh, at an interesting time, uh, he, he's the author of The Metropolitan Revolution. So this is kind of the handbook that you authored about five years ago, maybe? That I don't remember. Something Four like or five, that. Yeah. yeah, you know, that really <laughs> put people's thoughts together on what's happening in cities and metro areas. Something different is taking place in terms of uh, how cities are fitting in the global order. It used to be countries, some states, now cities in increasingly are at that prominent stage. Bruce's uh, latest book is a book called The New Localism. And it's a roadmap to help communities navigate in these very difficult times. And the times could be, uh, if you're in the United Kingdom, it's Brexit. If you're in the United States, it's this rural urban thing and with the Trump administration that's been quite a different place. So as power shifts in the world, how do cities adapt? And what are the political dynamics behind uh, issues like that? So Bruce will share some of those, info, some of that, some of that, uh, his observations with us on that. So last thing, I guess, uh, a guy like his, Bruce, is not here just because he uh, fell off the turnip truck. Uh, you know, Bruce is an extraordinarily uh, capable guy with a law degree from Yale Law School in 1985. He is a regular advisor to state, local, and national leaders, has been recognized around the world for all these activities. So, and is in particular, has been uh, the leading thinker on and developer of the HOPE-6 grants uh, with the, uh, HUD. So he worked with Henry Cisneros when uh, S Secretary Cisneros was the chair of HUD 
So they developed a lot of these cutting edge issues that you see around affordable housing. Later today, we'll be taking him to our choice project over here. Yeah. So we're working with Bruce today on general observations about cities, asking any, respond to any questions y'all have. Our innovation district work with wellness and aging care uh, innovation, the opportunity zone work that's a product out of the recent tax changes of the Trump administration. And then we're working with our wellness and aging care CEOs on what they're doing with innovation as well. So then we have a, a public lecture at the library later today. So we got a fully scheduled Bruce Katz here today. We want to get everything we can while he's out of him. So Bruce, you've been a great, great friend to the city. So if everybody please welcome Bruce Katz. Okay, sorry for the long intro there. All right, so Bruce, uh, why don't, you know, you don't need a lot of prompting. Uh, <laughs> what, you know, you've had a long and uh, storied career with, a, fortunately, a long time left in it. So wh where, do you, you, where do you find us right now in terms of, let's start with America, let's start with the cities of America. Well, I, you know, I think we're sort of at the end of a particular cycle, you know, I, and I think the cycle could be 75 years since uh, the end of the Second World War where we developed a lot of institutions um, for American cities. Um, a lot of our independent authorities, you know, the ports, the airports, the stadia, a lot of this was built around that time. And I think we're sort of at the end of that cycle right now. And I, I think we're, um, because so much responsibility in this country, but frankly around the world, has been pushed down to cities, and metropolitan areas, um, responsibilities for economic competitiveness, a lot of what you describe, the innovation work, responsibilities for cradle to career, investments in early childhood, social issues, and then environmental challenges. All these responsibilities have basically been pushed down to the city level because the national government and states have to some extent been hijacked by partisanship. And they're also 20th century structures, really. And 20th century was very much about compartmentalization, specialization, bureaucracy. You know, so if you have a transportation problem, you go to the Department of Transportation. If you have an education problem, you go to the Department of Education. We're, we're in a world where solutions are multidimensional, interdisciplinary, and cross-sectoral. So I feel like we're at the end of a certain cycle where we built institutions for a 20th century model, big government, big corporations, big labor, and those models, those institutes don't really work anymore. And we're now slowly transitioning to, to creating, designing the new architecture for the 21st century, which is a city architecture. So all this book was about, because you know, to be frank, when Jeremy and I started writing it, like most books, it wasn't like we really knew what we were writing. We just we need to write a book, right? You know? <laughs> we need to make a statement. Okay, what statement are we making? Oh, I'll be coming to Philly and we'll figure it out. But we, we started searching for like new models, new norms in the United States and Europe and around the world, particularly governance and finance models. How do cities fund the future? And, and do we have the right institutions? Well, we quickly answered no. Well, what are the right institutions? And that was the search we started. So, I mean, to be frank, I mean, I spend most of my time just constantly iterating. So, you know, the, the, 
the horrible thing in, in the United States is when you get labeled as an expert. People think you actually know what the hell you're talking about. You know, and I, I sort of feel, well, I'm sort of channeling you all. <laughs> you know, I'm crowdsourcing constantly. And, but I, I do feel that, you know, as we were walking in, you, you were sort of saying, what, what puts Louisville on the map? This is one of these periods where any medium-sized city, pretty much anywhere in the world, could get on the map because things have been disrupted. Everything's been sort of upheaved. And we're going, I think 15 or 25 years from now, we'll look back at this period and say, those kind of institutions were created, these kind of financial models, this kind of practice. So anyone can invent that. And I, I think you all, because of the quality of the people in this room and the leadership you've provided and the collaborative culture of this city, you have the potential to really project yourself around some really hard, difficult issues. If it was 25 years ago, I, I don't think I'd think the same. But things are moving now. The plates are moving. And it's just giving you an opportunity, I think, to step up and invent some, not just new practice, new kinds of institutions to take on the hard challenges. Okay, so can you talk about your early career? Obviously, you've kind of accumulated your knowledge over the yeah. year and have been able to really yeah. have insights that most people haven't been able to, to see. Where did that start and how, yeah. how did you get to where you So I was, I was at this crazy dinner with a bunch of governors the other day, um, was like two weeks ago. Talk about opportunity zones, right? And the, the, the person who held the dinner said, everyone should go around the room and describe the influence of their parents. So I, I just will say this, because you know, for most of us in this room, our parents had enormous influence on our lives. My parents in 1963 had a choice, like most people living in cities, to either leave Brooklyn, New York, move to Connecticut, to the suburbs, or move to Long Island, to the suburbs. Like, that was their choice. And if they had moved to the suburbs, they would have gotten a mortgage at lower cost uh, and a house that was cheaper. They stayed in Brooklyn. That's why I'm here, I mean, basically. So I'm an urban obsessive because my parents were urban obsessives. They would never have said that. And when I was in high school, there was a choice to leave high school early and go to work um, for whatever you wanted to do. Um, and I said, that's a good idea because, you know, what am I going to do in high school? Um, and I went to, uh, I worked for the city council. At and what age I, now? Uh, I was 17. And the city council person I worked for, his father was the speaker of the state assembly um, and also the head of the Brooklyn Democratic machine. So he was indicted and all that. All the normal stuff. All the normal stuff. The police are here, so I'm, I'm going to keep this <laughs> within bounds. Um, but uh, so I, from then, it just was, as you can imagine, even in New York City, it was a small network of people who said, what job do you want this summer? I, yeah, I want to work for the deputy mayor for criminal justice on arson. Okay. That's your job. I mean, so every summer I would have a job, and um, pretty much everything I've done has been sort of, sort of a constant evolution from the base of having parents who basically said, follow your dream, follow your passion. If it's about cities, we'll do anything to support you. And then it's taken me in some odd directions, but, but it really starts from that platform, I think. Talk, but you seem to have an affinity for housing. Well, at the time, you know, when I started working, um, 
you know, in, in, in college and in law school, if you said, what does the national government do with regard to cities, the answer was housing, because we had a Department of Housing and Urban Development. So we, we equated city and federal policy with housing, which is quite odd, actually, because in most countries, housing is not a national issue. It's a local issue. Schools are a national issue. I mean, we, we sort of did everything in reverse in the United States. Um, our schools are local. In most countries, they're national institutions. So when I was in uh, college and law school and I thought, okay, I'm going to work at the national level on cities, really the only thing to work on was housing or maybe transit at the time. Um, so I went and worked for the Subcommittee on Housing and Urban Affairs in the Senate, which had jurisdiction over housing and transit. So I figured I had had the trifecta here or whatever. And then I went to be chief of staff at HUD for Henry Cisneros, who's a marvelous person, just incredible visionary. And that's where we did Hope Six and public housing transformation and so forth. But I have to say, I mean, what was happening when I was at HUD, I became very restless and began to say, why aren't we talking about public safety? Why aren't we talking about cradle to career? We didn't have that phrase at the time, but why aren't we dealing with those kinds of schools and skills issues? Why aren't we talking about so? I just went to Brookings to sort of, you know, sort of expand my purview, really. And it took a while to get out of this very constrained box that we had gotten to ourselves into around what national policy, state, local. And I think over the last 20 years, we've developed a, like a new architecture, a new framework. Cities at the centers of national economies, cities at the vanguard of problem solving. But it requires a different way of thinking about solutions and a different way of thinking about these multi-dimensional issues and challenges. So a lot of these themes are what you've put in your book, the new localism. So share a little bit about that. Uh, with yeah, so, new, I, I, so I had become obsessed with uh, what, is, what is power in the 21st century. Um, because, you know, when I was spending a lot of time in, um, in Europe and I would talk to people about power, they would only talk about governmental power and political power. So if you talk about what's the power of London or what's the power of Barcelona or what's the power of Copenhagen, the answer would be, well, the, the national government allows us to do this, and that's our power. And I said, well, that's just governmental power. You know, your cities are like, particularly a place like London, you're, you know, you're the global city of the stratosphere, so why aren't we talking about market power? Why aren't we talking about civic power? Because that, to me, is really the power of cities, right? And why aren't we talking about new ways of solving hard problems? So the book, if you read the book, the first sentence is, this is a book about reimagining power. And it, and, it, and it really is about what is 21st century problem solving? Because 20th century problem solving, again, was that hierarchical way of going to a bureaucracy, oh, please, sir, we have this problem. Solve it for us, you know? you're an engineer, or you're this, or you're that, so you're a specialist, you can solve it. 21st century is really a mashed up network kind of society and economy. So uh, what we were trying to find were solutions and institutions that are reflective of a very different way of thinking about problems and a de very different way of thinking about solutions. And I came out of the book like crazy optimistic because I tend to drink my own Kool-Aid all the time. Um, 
So whether anyone else pays any attention to it or not, I'm a happy guy because you know, <laughs> things are moving forward. But I, I, I really do think we're in this period that is a transition from one way of problem solving to a very different way of problem solving, uh, where we're finally getting the full effect of not just the public sector, public, private, civic, university, labor, community. And the goal, really, the challenge for cities is how do you harness that, how do you organize it, how do you step outside of your sector and bring more stakeholders to crack at the obvious challenges that you have. So I think, I'm, you know, I feel like writing another book, actually, because I feel like we sort of got it, but now as I go around and talk about it, I'm, I feel like it's been affirmed, and now I'm just finding all these different really interesting things happening both here and outside the U.S. Um, but, you know, obviously I'll... Let's sell this one first. Oh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll so calm down for a while. The, well, let's you know. put that in the context of uh, America. Yeah. We're living in a world, uh, in a country that requires more cooperation. Right. Really, to get satisfaction to the customer, the citizen. Sure. But we have... Uh, relationships with our federal government and our state governments that are dynamic. We want to use a nice term for that. So, you know, how do you put this increasingly uh, cross-functional world, a world that uh, uh, cities that have need cross-functional solutions in context with federal and state gov governments that arguably might be more difficult to work with? So when I, when I started work with Henry at, at HUD, Across the street was the Department of Transportation. This is before it moved in Washington. And Frederico Pena, who had been the mayor of Denver, was the head of transportation. So first week, Henry says, housing and transportation are inextricably linked. Let's go talk to Frederico and figure out how to collaborate. Um, and after about three hours hanging out with the Department of Transportation, we came back. He says, what do you think? I said, I think interagency collaboration is an unnatural act between non-consenting adults. <laughs> so I said, so that's the last meeting we should have because <laughs> nothing's going to happen, right? Um, and I, I, I do think that, again, there's this 20th century silo and stovepipe architecture of higher levels of government because we bought into this like Max Weber specialization ethic, right? When you get to this level, cities and metropolitan areas, and, and part of it is just proximity. You know, everyone's like in one building or everyone's within a small geography across different sectors. I think it, it raises the opportunity that if you take the opioid crisis, you take early childhood education, you take you know, sort of distressed communities, affordable, whatever issue you take, you could literally get all the different sectors in one room, and they're not looking at each other like, you're the regulator, and I'm the regulatee, right? I mean, they, it, there's more of a intimate relationship across these. A lot of people know each other in their social lives, so they're, it creates the, the possibility of multi-sector interdisciplinary responses and new innovations. And I think that's what's happening at the city level today. I, I, you know, it happened maybe first around placemaking and transportation, even you know, some of the public safety issues going back 30 years. We began to break out of these silos at the city level, and we began to create new kinds of solutions. If you went to a state DOT, you still go to a state DOT. We have a traffic congestion problem. Build a new bridge build another road. I mean, they still don't quite get that just, that just 
you know, creates more demand. If you go to a city, you go, well, maybe we should have more clusters of mixed use and housing, or maybe we should have technology, you know. Cities just come at issues because of this multi-sector, multi-dimensional, you know, um, potential in just so many different ways. So I think, I think that's the moment right now. Um, and I, I, I do think that we're going to create new institutions. I mean, you know, we have public, we have private. The book is really about everything in between. We talk about public-private entities like the Copenhagen City and Port Corporation. We talk about private-public entities like business improvement districts, the Cortex District in St. Louis. We talk about private-civic entities like the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. I think that's where all the interesting stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen between public and private. And you all could, you know, you're small enough to do this that everyone will go, the Louisville model, the Louisville way, that's it. Let's run with that for a while. I know? think we're in your book, aren't, aren't we? Oh, yeah, of course you're in the book. Um, <laughs> you're in the book. <laughs> but um, Bruce has been a long fan of our yeah. cradle to career work as, yeah. a, as an example of cross-sector collaboration. And when you think about much of the work that uh, we're doing in this room, whether it's uh, uh, public health with opioid uh, corrections, real estate development that we've got going on with, say, our Vision Russell Collaborative, some of our transportation work, it goes on and on. We naturally think cross-functionally. Many cities do not. Right. You go to s a lot of city governments in this country, they, these different departments won't even talk to each other. Right. And, and they, then a new mayor comes in, they start back over. It's amazing how dysfunctional they are. So we're doing a good job in that area. We, we can always do more. We can always go faster. That's what we say. But we appreciate your recognition. Uh, well, specialization dies hard. Yeah. I mean, you go into these different, when I went into HUD and spent, you know, I had been, you know, on the, on the Senate, so I understood the HUD language. You know, I would sit with the civil service, and after about three hours, I go, if anyone from the United States walked in this room and listened to us speak, they wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about. Section A, section this, section this, section that. So, you know, let's begin to talk in a way where we can, so, especially, you know, these, these guilds like to maintain their dominance, and they use it through language and, you know, all the, and so we're, we have to break that down. Let's get to the core nature of the problem and what are going to be the different kinds of interventions that are going to get us success. But that requires flattening horizontal right. as opposed to vertical. Well, let's talk about that in you yeah. know, the context of uh, total participation of citizens in yeah. society. We've had, uh, for centuries, uh, deep urban America feeling like they're not connected sure. to a positive future. In this most recent presidential election, you had the stereotypical kind of uh, white, dispossessed, unemployed, factory, mine worker not feeling connected to a positive future. What, what's going on uh, in our country, and what's the role of inclusion? Well, I, look, I think we're at the tail end of 30, 40 years of globalization um, where we are seeing enormous disruption. Everything has changed in the mature economies. And you were just in India recently. So, you know, in 1980, China, small number of people, India, small number of people, were not online economically in the world, right? They were just closed societies. They're now fully online. So two, two and a half billion people are now engaged in the global economy and able to compete 
in significant ways. Well, that has put enormous pressure on and completely restructured our economy and re completely restructured all mature economies. And so the, the old days of manufacturing, you know, and industrial production being a certain portion of our economy where you could get good jobs, good benefits without, you know, a college, those, those are over. Right, I mean, completely over. And I think, I think what's happened with you know the rise of populism to me, is, is is a natural sort of response to this incredible upheaval we've had in the economy. People are feeling unbelievably insecure, and they're feeling culturally anxious. And populism is a way for, and it's in the American history. It's it's. It's a way to exploit grievances, from, for the most part. You know, there are some populists who are actually sane and sensible, but they're in the minority. I mean, this is, these are primarily demagogues. You look at the Italian election. I mean, these are demagogues who are exploiting real grievances. Localism is a way to, to solve the hard issues, but which are very structural. So, you know, we're not going to redo the global order here. We're not going to put China and India back in their box and suddenly have a return of American industrial production at the scale it was. But we can develop a different economic model, I think, at the city and metropolitan level that yields more jobs, better jobs, higher benefits. But it's going to require a fundamentally different approach to schools and skills. I mean, we're going to have to equip people for a radically different century. Um, I mean, I go into some of these schools today, and I tend to spend a lot of time going to elementary schools um, just to see if there's a kid in the back fidgeting like I was. You know? um, there's usually one. <laughs> and I, some schools, I think, clearly are adapting to this new world, and some seem to be still teaching in more rote and routinized ways. So I think, I think that's probably the most important thing we do as a country, um, if, if our citizenry are truly going to be equipped is, is to change, start early, and, and change how we basically educate people for a radically different world. Um, but, but bottom line, we're, we're dealing with big structural market forces that were unleashed 40 years ago and now are playing out. And, and what we're seeing in, with populism here or elsewhere is almost like a natural political response to this disruption. But at the local level, the last you know, sort of level of pragmatism and affirmative solutions, you know, we're, we're, we just have to keep, we're, we're now responsible for, for presenting both the narrative and, and the specifics of the response. Well, in many ways, it's a reflection that you know, our governments have just been so slow to respond yeah. to a, a changing yeah. world. And when you think about populist anger, yeah. Uh, people will say, well, these folks got to get with the program. The world's changing. Well, imagine if you're a third-generation coal miner in eastern Kentucky that, you know, the country was glad to have you when we provided low-cost energy to the entire country, but now the market has shifted and you're left on your own. And, you know, there was no government type of transition to help you to a hopeful and positive place. Yeah. Other countries make that transition. When you think about the age the longevity of a life in Louisville and a 12-year difference between uh, a West Louisville neighborhood and an East Louisville neighborhood. Uh, 
those are specific issues that people have a right to be grieved upon. How do we react and build new systems that are adapted to that? And without it, you see disruption. You see, the, you see a Brexit. You yep. see a Trump. You see the Italian uh, results uh, last week. So it's a call to action for us not to uh, blame people when they're angry, but for us to ask, why are they angry? What, are, what is the role that we played in this whole process in terms of bringing people along? So it's an exciting time to be in government because we have the scale and the platform to make these changes. So let's, while well, y'all prepare your questions, Can I ask, just will. say one other yeah. thing about, uh, you know, so the economic insecurity, we can understand why that has happened. The cultural anxiety is also because shifting demographics. In Europe, it's because of refugees and migration, and here it's, it's race and also immigration. And I, and I do think a lot of what has happened in the United States and Europe is, is, a, is, a form, is, is a form of racism and a form of xenophobia, really. You know, stop the train, I want to get off. Our, 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 our places are becoming too diverse and those people are about to take power. And, you know, I, I think, you know, so much of what's happening in the mature, you know, the West, so to speak, um, particularly just what happened in Italy, is it's, it's less about economy and, and more about demographic transformation and transition. And the, the role of the political leaders and major corporate civic and other leaders is to manage this transition. Because in theory, you know, particularly in the United States, opening up our borders for immigrants, um, seeing a country become majority minority, this is a good thing. I mean, this is very positive um, from a, on a whole bunch of different levels. But there's a group of folks that clearly feel very uncomfortable with it, both here and, and frankly in Europe. And this is probably the biggest challenge and the hardest thing to talk about. We can talk about the economy and every, you know, Larry Summers will get up and you know, talk about the economy. But I think what's really going on is a very hard social transformation. And that is also, I think, where cities have to lead because the, the political parties at the national level, again, are exploiting grievances and exploiting divisions. We're representing the white working class. You're representing the, the new majority, you know. That's what the political parties are doing. It's only at this level we can break down and, and, and work together. Well, I think that's what you see in cities because we live with our people. At the state and federal yeah. level, you'll see people politically take a, a short-term strategy is let's divide, let's create fear and hatred yeah. because you can have a short-term political win if you do that. So the question is, are you a short-term thinking or mid-long-term thinking where you take on more of a a uh, benevolent teacher type of role of here's what's happening in society. Here's what we know the inevitable consequences are. Let's take demographics, for instance, or let's take our decisions whether to live with each other peacefully and interdependently. That is the only way that we can survive as a species, us, our kids, and our grandkids. That's, that doesn't quite get people fired up as much as they are taking something from you and you need to hate them, so vote for me. So, I mean, you see this playing out in full technicolor vision around the world today. And I think for our work, we're, we are with our people. We in this room are teachers because we have to implement what's going on. We have to recognize that tension exists out there and bring our people through that. 
And the more they're involved in it, obviously, the more they're going to be with this. Because at the city level, we can connect it to heart. And we do that day in and day out with the services that, we're, we, that we deliver. So that's where I see hope uh, in, at the city level. Absolutely. No, and again, I, I think so much of this is just about human interaction. Um, not sectors, not institutions. I mean, it's just people breaking it down. Let's just, you know, and I, I think at the city level is where you're really capable of those person-to-person -person relationships, which frankly, when you get to the national level, you know, it's an ecosystem, not an ecosystem. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, cities are ecosystems. National government's an ecosystem. You I know. get your questions ready if, yeah. if you would be. Uh, two more questions before we go out there. You've, yeah. you've been with me when I've talked about our city value of compa yes. compassion yeah. before. What, what are your observations on that? Well, initially I thought you were probably nuts, but I, I mean, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn, so, you know, I, I mean, it's not a very, uh, compassion is not the word I would use growing up in Brooklyn, you know. Um, it's just, yeah, you grow up in a, in a constant state of sort of paranoia, actually, um, which is very helpful to survive, but, um, but I actually, I've, I've listened very closely to you, actually, over the last couple of years as you've talked about this. And um, I, I've actually come to believe that this, in a way, what you're, you're describing is really like an essential narrative for our cities going forward. And it took me a while to get there. Again, I had to un undo the Brooklyn side. Um, but it gets to this question of, you know, for me, uh, how do we manage this very complicated demographic period in our country? You know, um, and particularly the racial divisions we've had in this country, which are longstanding and, and, and have led to some dramatic achievement gaps, really, um, that we struggle with today. And I, I think we have to find some core values to do that. And we, we, we have to strip it down. We've got to get out of the policy speak, out of the policy prescription. We've got to get to some core human values and speak to each other across those dimensions. I, so I, I, you know, I probably had to unlearn a lot of the policy stuff also, because every time you, you, know, you work for a national agency, or, you know, we're in charge, which is obviously not true, but we're in charge, we're going to fix it with this tinkering. And so much of what we're dealing with, I think, um, are these interactions at the local level, um, either with people or from very different walks of life or with different disciplines, different sectors, different institutions. We sort of have to break down the walls and get to a very different kind of collaborative ethic. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's taken a while, but I really think that, you, you know, what, what you're, putting forward is a, is, a, is a new narrative for how, you know, cities just don't prosper economically, but more importantly, are, are socially cohesive and inclusive, you know? The last thing uh, before we go to our questions, uh, Stockholm, uh, Bruce and I were in Stockholm for five days this past fall, and an amazing uh, ability to combine innovation yeah. and compassion. So can you talk a little bit about this notion of American exceptionalism and we think that we've got all the answers and these other countries need to uh, learn from us. 
we have a lot to learn from other uh, countries. So in a, a city like Stockholm that's got extraordinary entrepreneurial activity with a strong social contract, what can we learn? So I, you know, if you, and this is sort of a, a cartoon, but you know, if you think about cities across a car continuum, there are cities that are very good product innovators, right? Um, like they just keep technologically inventing, right? Silicon Valley, right, is, is a great example. Tel Aviv, right? But they can't govern themselves out of a paper bag, basically. You know, I mean, so for whatever reason, fragmentation, culture, what, uh, you know, when you, when you have that kind of product innovation and you're incredibly economically prosperous, you have all the congestion and housing issues and social divides, but you can't get your, your hands around it, right? The other end, you have process innovators, public process innovators in particular. And there's a bunch of Euro northern European countries and some of the Asian countries that are really good at government and governing but they're not that chaotic or disruptive. You're never going to see the, you know, Uber or Lyft or this or that ever come out of those societies, right? There's only a few places that are both product and process innovators. Stockholm's one of them. Helsinki's another of them. They tend to be in the Scandinavian countries. I'm not. In, it's got to be some weird cultural thing, you know, right? That that I'm a Jew from Brooklyn. It'll take a while to figure this out, but you know. But, but they're able to sort of do both. They both have that sort of stability and predictability and capacity and capability of good government and good governance, but they also have a bit of chaos, you know? It may be just that they're small and they're old trading countries and they know they have to keep innovating or someone's just gonna, you know, out-excel out them or whatever. So there's only a few places that combine both. And I think that, you know, the challenge for the United States, because we're incredible product innovators, you know, I mean, you go to South by Southwest or, you know, you go to any, any of these tech festivals or you go to just, you know, any of your startup entrepreneurial areas of your city and you go, who are these people? I mean, they're just constantly. But we've got to figure out a way of adapting and adopting the Scandinavian governance, you know. Um, whether it's just in the public sector or public-private or private-public, so we can deal with some of the big challenges that require collective activity, right? It's just not enough to have a brilliant entrepreneur who came up with the next product. We need a collective governance to deal with so many of our issues. So you're talking about housing, education. Housing, healthcare. education, you know, climate, you know, the health crisis. These require collect, and we're not going to fix it with an app, right? I mean, we're not. Um, so, uh, and that's not to diminish a lot of the technological improvements, but we're not going to fix it with an app. We're going to have to basically, and we're not going to fix it government alone either for the most part. We're going to need new kinds of public-private civic. And I, so the one thing I've learned from the, from the Scandinavians is they're very good at governing around the big things, you know, infrastructure and housing and schools and, you know, public safety and so, I mean, they're really good. And at the same time, they've got enough chaos and entrepreneurialism to be in that next generation innovation. They're not as crazy as us. Or the, so whenever I'm over there, they're basically, you know, in Stockholm or Helsinki, they go, We'd like to spend some more time with te in Tel Aviv or in 
some of your American cities and absorb a bit more of your chaos. I said, well, you don't want to absorb too much of it because, you know. And, but it's a beautiful you know, thing to be in a yeah. city like that, that where there's yeah. balance. So, so imagine yeah. a city where yeah. there is no poverty. Yeah. And because the, uh, the people have decided there will be no poverty. We're the richest country in the world financially, but not when it comes to early childhood, when it comes to housing, when it comes to food security, when it comes to on and on and on. And those are choices that we're making. So it's a very different feel when you're in a city and there's no homeless. There's very limited crime because people have their basic needs met. And so when I talk tactically here yeah. in America, I always try to close with a, remember to, to advocate for cradle to career. Everybody should be able to have childcare through a college degree. Those, in Germany, that's all paid for by the state. Now they pay, what, five points more taxes or so. Yeah. But as I was reminded on our Munich trip where an American was making fun of the uh, Germans for paying more taxes, the German guy said, stop, Mr. Smith. We learned 300 years ago, when the poor people don't have enough money, they kill the rich people. <laughs> so we're very happy with our system here. And it's a system where everybody does better. It's not a win-lose type of thing. So I think in many ways, America, we're still like teenagers. We haven't quite figured this out. We yet. are like teenagers. I, w I will say one thing in defense of the United States. Um, having spent a lot of time in Germany and Sweden uh, and Britain around the refugee issue and the migrant issue, um, and this is changing here, right, so because of the president. But to become a Swede or to become a German or become, a, it's, it's really complicated. I mean, not the ministerial aspects of it, the cultural aspects of it. In the United States, it's like, well, it used to be. You work hard, you know, um, and, and you play by the rules. You're an American, you know? Welcome, right? I mean, uh, we are still a country which uh, uh, really enables people to join our culture in ways you can't in Europe. And that's our greatest strength. It really is our greatest strength. And with all of our yeah. imperfections, yeah. I think it's going yeah. to be the United States or the United Kingdom, I'd be curious on your observation yeah. on this, that will figure out how to show the world how a highly diverse country utilizes this diversity to create a new form of kind of economic and human potential Absolutely. liberation. I totally believe, I totally agree with that. I think it'll be us. I really do. Okay, well, with this, uh, oh, why don't we go we, to we, some yeah. questions and, yeah. uh, uh, for, for Dr. Katz here. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah. Um, you've talked a lot about public-private partnerships and the innovation that comes from that. Uh, the question I have is how you maintain citizen ownership and engagement right. when private capital is greatly as assuming the roles that public capital used to play, uh, from more benevolent things like social impact investing to straight-up privatization where you've got to pay to play. And how do you maintain an engaged and empowered citizenry when they no longer have financial control of the services that are being delivered through the government? Okay, so that's, that's a great question. And, I, and so I have two responses that, of course, are going to come out of Scandinavia because, God forbid, we look anywhere else. But um, so the first is the way, go to Copenhagen, right? Copenhagen has something called the City and Port Development Corporation. 30 years ago, the city had 18% unemployment, was fiscally bankrupt. They took all the land that the government owned between the airport and the downtown and along the harbor and put it under a corporation. The corporation's publicly owned, though. 
and professionally managed. Here we have public authorities, right? It's all public. There is a public-private corporation. So the mayor is the chair of the board of the corporation, setting the vision. And the, the most important piece of the vision was as we sell land or as we lease land, all the revenue is going to service the debt on a modern transportation system. So Copenhagen is building one of the great subway systems of the world with not a kroner of taxes. It's all off of public asset management, land sales, et cetera, et cetera. Really smart. So it's a different kind of public-private. It's not a transaction, it's an institution which then does transactions. And the public benefits. The second piece, um, and this is more Sweden, all the municipalities in Sweden have come together to, um, to form something called Communivest. And Communivest is essentially an organization where cities figure out what financial instruments do we need, either for ourselves or for our citizens, so that we can use our collective market power to negotiate with the major financial institutions so that when we're doing A, B, or C, it's in our interest. It's not just in the private interest. And here, I think we leave every city to themselves, essentially, to sort it out with the big commercial banks or you know, uh, capital markets, et cetera, et cetera. In Sweden, it's done collectively. Now, ultimately, individual cities then have to design, finance, and deliver smart projects. But they're doing it off of a collective platform. I think in 10 years, what we need in the US is, and this will change what the US Conference of Mayors does, or the League of Cities, or National Association of Counties. We don't just need collections of cities looking to Washington and lobbying Washington. That's a 20th century model. We need to mostly protect ourselves from Washington more than anything else. But what we need is a new kind of collective financial innovation so that we can work with the major sources of capital. And by the way, most of the sources of capital are outside the US because the big sovereign funds are not American. They're Singaporean, they're Norwegian, you know, they're Middle Eastern. So we need a much more sophisticated group of urban leadership, and that can only come, I think, from a collect, new kind of collective intermediaries. I mean, in the end, what we're trying to do is, is serve our citizens. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. But we've got to figure out new institutional models, either at the city level or collectively, to do that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Bruce. The mayor mentioned the rural-urban divide. Yeah. What do you think cities can and should do to form stronger alliances and partnerships with smaller and more rural communities? So, you know, the urban-rural divide. Um, can sound like we're talking about Manhattan and Kansas. <laughs> so it's like never the twain shall be. Um, I still get a little nervous as a Brooklyn kid when I'm out <laughs> of a city, to be frank. Um, um, the most interesting statistic for you all to think about is that half of the people who live in rural America live in metropolitan areas because Jobs have decentralized to such an extent, and population is decentralized to such an extent, that many of our rural areas are like commuter origins for metropolitan jobs. You know, so they, they, they become absorbed by the metropolitan area. So the urban-rural divide for half of rural Americans is not an abstract you know, Manhattan versus Kansas. It's Louisville and its periphery, right? 
which clearly has economic linkages, or else they wouldn't be in the metropolitan area. They're part of your labor market. They may be near you know, other infrastructure, energy source, food source, all the rest of it. So I, I actually think the cities and metropolitan areas are going to have to figure out very tangible and concrete urban-rural linkages and create new kinds of intermediary structures to make that happen. Because at the national level, all the parties are going to do is exploit the divisions. That's all they're going to do. The, the Democrats own the core cities and most of the urban counties. Then there's like a middle bit of suburbs developed in the 70s, which are basically under competition. And the Republicans own everything else. I, they're just going to exploit the grievances and exploit the division. So this level is going to have to basically figure out how do we link urban-rural, not in general, in very concrete economic ways. There's a lot of hurt out there. There's a lot of hurt out there because of economic disruption. But as the cities begin to develop from their cores, there's a lot of interdependency and linkages that we could draw together, starting with labor skills and, and those things. I hope that's responsive. But this 50% of rural Americans live in metropolitan areas sort of blows people's minds because that's not how they think about urban-rural. We're actually much more connected spatially than we understand. Yeah. Bruce, we've got to wrap this up. Yep. So uh, you've been a good friend to our city, and you've learned a lot about us. So why don't you give us a little what you see our weaknesses are here, what our strengths are, and what advice you have for our team here moving forward. Yeah, I, look, I think you're, you're in a global world um, where a lot of people will say, if you're not 10 or 15 or 25 million, forget about it. I think that's absurd. I mean, I think that's completely nonsense. I think we have several dozen metropolitan areas in the United States who can punch above their weight and, and really compete at the global scale. Um, your challenge from an economic perspective uh, is, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan once said, if you want a great city, create a great university and wait 200 years. Um, right? I think the product cycles are a little faster today than 200 years. But University of Louisville you know, hasn't quite been that sort of, um, though it has some great aspects to it, that academic research platform that a modern American metropolis needs. So you know, in a way, the, you know, from a starting point perspective, You've got great companies. They, they tend to um, gravitate around particular sectors. Um, you've got to bulk that up. I mean, you really got to bulk that up because at the end of the day, cities prosper when their advanced economy and their innovative economy and their research-driven economy is as strong as it can be. So I, I, I would say that's your challenge, right? Um, and other American cities, by the way, didn't have a Carnegie Mellon or didn't have a Georgia Tech, or, you know, but still were able to sort of make the leap forward. Sometimes it was like Denver's just you know, in the middle of environmental nirvana, so you know, um, people want to be there kind of. So you, but you've got you to bulk that up. On the, on, on the opportunity side, you know, the opportunities for a place this size um, you know, with the kind of leadership and collaborative culture you have are, are essentially limitless. I mean, I, you, the question for you is not whether you can problem solve, but which problems do you want to solve, right? You know, my 
focus these days very much is on early childhood education because I'm sick and tired of everyone saying, you know, if only we had universal pre-K or, you know, or if only we invested, you know, um, in zero to three, the racial and ethnic achievement gap would be dramatically reduced. Okay. Let's just stop saying, let's just do it. You know, I mean, we have enough wealth at the city and metropolitan level. Kids are cheap compared to bridges, roads, tunnels. Kids are cheap. They prison, don't cost much. Prison. Prison. No, kids are really cheap. So do the math. You know, when you read the book, my favorite epigram is, how many people have seen The Martian with Matt Damon? <coughs> I I've saw that movie like 30 times. I became obsessed with that movie. I don't know why. But at the end of the movie, when he comes back, you know, he's teaching that class, and he says, you just do the math. You know, you solve one problem, then you solve another problem, then you solve another problem. And then if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. I think on early childhood education, let's just do the math. What's it going to take to invest from zero to three? The research already tells us. What's it going to take to invest from three to six? What's it going to take for K to 12? What's summer jobs? you know, after school. What's it going to take for a great community college system? Just do the math and let's just do it and stop waiting for the national government and the states to do it. I think, to me, that's, the, that's that integrated package that any American city that takes that on and is able to perfect it with quality and scale and sustained way, you're globally significant. Companies will come just because of that. All right? So it's a mix of those two things that I think. I mean, you're already like on the map, but this just propels you even further. Okay. All right, Bruce, you're a good friend. Look forward to working with you many years. Dr. Bruce Katz, city's expert, and Mayor Greg Fisher speaking live from the Mayor's Gallery in Metro Hall in downtown Louisville. This is the Mayor Greg Fisher Podcast. Our producer is Joe Lord. You can keep up with the mayor. He's in constant motion on social media, on uh, Twitter, and Facebook, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to this podcast, a move we heartily endorse, through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Thank you for listening to the Mayor Greg Fisher Podcast.